It feels a little thin in the theater this morning. We have a few seats left up front. If any of you want to scoot down, it's probably appropriate. We have a narrative in front of us about Jesus' self-revelation to the seven disciples that decided to go fishing. This morning we have this story preached for the few of you that chose not to go fishing over the weekend. We're starting John's last chapter. He's winding down his gospel narrative. We've worked through Jesus' crucifixion and his burial. And we've seen with delight and confusion, along with the disciples, his resurrection. Last week we had Jesus confronting Thomas's doubt. Confronting him with his saving presence and power. And this morning... We have a different kind of doubt confronted. This morning we have not the doubt that Jesus was raised. This morning we have Jesus confronting Peter's doubt that Jesus could still love him after his three denials. This is the much more anxious doubt that some of us encounter from time to time. Some of us struggle with doubts over whether or not Jesus really is the Son of God, whether or not he really did rise from the dead. The much more painful doubt is to believe that all of that is true, but wonder if it could possibly be true in a saving way for us. Could we belong to this God? Could He love us, not because we find Him disappointing, but because we're sure that we're disappointing to Him? And so this morning, Jesus confronts that in Peter, and who will confront it in us. And it's good and refreshing news. This morning, you have the privilege of being comforted by Peter's great discomfort. Little Christians and old Christians, these are my questions for you this morning. As we work through this passage, I want you to think about what Jesus does with us. What does Jesus do with us once we're His? We know that He forgives us. We know that He soothes and comforts us when we hurt We say that he is actively at work in us, changing us, sanctifying us, making us more like himself so that we love our sin less and we love him more and more. This morning I'm asking you the question, why? Why does Jesus do all of this with us? Does he do something else with us that he's preparing us for in all this other grace? When he does all of these things to us and for us, does he intend to use us for some purpose? And if so, what is it? I'll give you a heads up before I start reading. We have 19 verses in front of us. The first 14 inside our sermon, I'm going to treat like preamble. I'm going to treat these like the appetizer for the rest of the meal. I think that what Jesus is doing inside those first 14 verses, is building another one of his living metaphors to demonstrate for Peter what he intends to do through Peter. This is the good news as John holds out to us our Savior and all of his saving strength. John's Gospel, chapter 21, verses 1 through 19. After this, Jesus revealed himself again to the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias. And he revealed himself in this way. Simon Peter, Thomas called the twin, 
Nathanael of Cana and Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two others of his disciples were together. Simon Peter said to them, I'm going fishing. And they said, we'll go with you. So they went out and got into a boat, but that night they caught nothing. And just as day was breaking, Jesus stood on the shore, yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to them, children, do you have any fish? And they answered him, no. So he said to them, cast the net on the right side of the boat and you'll find some. So they cast it and now they were not able to haul it in because of the quantity of fish. That disciple whom Jesus loved therefore said to Peter, it is the Lord. When Simon Peter, when Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment for he had stripped himself down for work and he threw himself into the sea. The other disciples came in the boat, dragging the net full of fish, for they were not far from the land, about a hundred yards off. When they got out on land, they saw a charcoal fire in place with fish laid out on it and bread. Jesus said to them, Bring some of the fish that you have just caught. So Simon Peter went aboard and hauled the net ashore, full of large fish, 153 of them. And although there were so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. And none of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them, and so with the fish. This was now the third time that Jesus was revealed to his disciples after he was raised from the dead. When they'd finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to him, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus said to him, Feed my lambs. And he said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, Tend my sheep. He said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said to him, The third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, Feed my sheep. Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands, and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. This he said to show by what kind of death he was to glorify God. After saying this, he said to him, follow me. Join me as we pray together. Lord, you have given us the great privilege of considering your word, to hear from you both the challenge and comfort of the gospel, We ask this morning that you would let us find rest in it. Let us hear with joy and refreshment, but let us find in the gospel all that you have placed there. Let us see clearly both your challenge and your comfort for us. In your cross, you have put to death our sin, both its guilt and its power. And in your resurrection, you have given us life and ministry in yourself. You've given us new life filled with discipleship. Would you restore to us the joy of our salvation, not in passivity, but in diligence as we follow you, just as you called Peter. We ask that you would do these things for our good and for the good of those among us and outside of us, 
for your glory in the church and in the world. Amen. Please be seated. I told you that those first 14 verses aren't really the point as I see it in the larger narrative. We could spend several weeks winding down John, and we could treat these first 14 verses like a story in themselves, and there's plenty in them to mine out from which we can draw encouragement and many places where we can see the gospel and the ministry of Jesus to these seven disciples. I think in the larger story, that's not the point. I think it would be sufficient and good to do it, but I also think that this narrative in these 14 verses actually serves the bigger story in these 19 verses, and the real point comes in those last few, in verses 15 through 19. So, I'm going to spend a little bit of time telling you what is not the point of the passage, which you're used to by now. I spend a lot of time telling you about things that are not the point. But then I'm going to try and drive us to the actual point. Kara told me, and has told me a couple of times, she thinks I preach really good sermons for about 20 minutes. The problem is the whole sermon is about 45 to 50 minutes. The real key is finding those good 20 minutes. I tend to think of it like runway and takeoff. I just need about 30 minutes of runway. And if you will allow me that, we will hit that 20 minutes of smooth air. But I'm going to try and tell you what is not the point as quickly as I can on a short runway so that I can get to the point of the passage. What I think the point is, in Jesus actually pulling Peter aside in front of other disciples as they walk away so that he can drive to the point where Peter is restored and he can say to him with full sincerity and confidence, Peter, follow me. If you want to think of it this way, these first 14 verses that are not the point, are Jesus having breakfast with his disciples. This is like a brunch scene. Fitting for a Sunday, a lot of you will go to lunch or brunch after the service. You'll sit down with family or friends and you will relax and enjoy a meal together. And that is part of what Jesus is doing here. This is the third time that Jesus has revealed himself to his disciples after the resurrection. And he does it in a setting of rest and feeding. I don't think it's torturous to the passage to help us think about our own communion that way as well. When you come to the table this morning, think of it as Jesus welcoming you to sit and dine with him, to have breakfast with him on a Sunday morning, his day of rest, his day of healing and restoration for his people. He comes here to feed you. And that's what he's doing with these first disciples. These seven have gone out fishing And I don't think they're going back to work. I don't think they're giving up on gospel ministry. I think they know fishing. They enjoy fishing. And they're hungry. So they go fishing. Only a couple of them are actually fishermen. The others are along for the ride. But Peter is one of those. Peter is one who has known fishing professionally. He's good at it. He's caught nothing. And Jesus still provides for him. And so we have in this first story a picture of both the miraculous and the mundane side by side. Jesus meeting them in the midst of unglamorous work and leisure, being miraculously kind to them to reveal himself to them after the resurrection. 
and not to strip any of the meaning out of the passage. But hear the peaceful plainness of Jesus' invitation when he says, just come have breakfast with me. He asks his disciples to sit down and enjoy a meal with him after his resurrection. And he feeds and cares for them. Later in the passage, we have what a lot of commentators and surely many pastors have made much of, the three-fold questioning. Do you love me? Yes, I love you. Some of you have surely heard it preached that there are all kinds of linguistic differences. The word that Jesus uses for love and the word that Peter uses for love. I don't think that's the point of the passage either. Most of the early church, many who were way more familiar with Greek than any of us, who spoke it regularly, saw no real significance in the change of language. It was just a simple change of vocabulary for style, probably. There's not a deep, hidden meaning in the different words used for love. What we have is Jesus asking Peter if he loves him three times, dramatically undoing Peter's three denials. And so in that story, what we have as John starts to drive us toward the point, three questions, do you love me? Three statements, yes, I love you. Three insistences from Peter, you know that I love you. And we have three commands from Jesus to feed and tend his sheep. And I think that is where Jesus is taking Peter, and I think that is where John is taking us as a church in the passage. I think that was the point as John relayed this to the early church, that Jesus is restoring Peter, and he is undoing his threefold denial. But Peter's right. These are things that Jesus already knows about him. He ends by saying, you know all things. You know that I love you. This is not an interrogation for Jesus to acquire new information. He's not actually asking to try and figure out and discern whether or not Peter loves him. He's confronting Peter and preaching to him with both challenge and comfort. And three times he gives him a ministry. Three times he says to him very simply, then if you love me, here's what discipleship looks like. I think this is the point of the passage. Really, when you get down to it in the interrogation, as Jesus says, do you love me? I think part of the point, part of what Jesus is uncovering for Peter comes in the very first question. You don't get it in the second and the third. But in the first, Jesus says, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He doesn't ask him, do you love me more than this? Do you like being with me more than fishing? Would you rather be an apostle instead of a fisherman? He's not asking, do you love me more than you love these other disciples? Do you love me exceptionally above your brothers? He's asking Peter, do you love me more than these others love me? And some of you are panicking. Jesus is not asking Peter 
to say yes. Jesus is confronting an arrogance in Peter that all through Jesus' earthly ministry has wanted to declare, Jesus, I love you more than everybody else. I am the best disciple. I am your most loyal follower. What Jesus is doing for Peter as his humble Savior is bringing Peter the type of humility that Peter needs. We've seen it several times in the Gospels. Peter is the impetuous one, the zealous one. You saw it in this passage. They all agreed it was Jesus. The other disciples rowed ashore. Peter threw himself in and swam ashore. Several times in the Gospels, you have accounts of arguments among the disciples or difficult sayings from Jesus, and Peter's constant insistence, I'm not like them. Look, if everyone else deserts you, I'm not going anywhere. I don't care if they come at us with swords and imprison us. I will follow you all the way to death. I would die for you. It's as if Peter, as annoyingly as I can paint it, in front of all the other disciples, pulls Jesus aside and with zeal and false piety and arrogance says, look, Jesus, the Bible talks about the friend that sticks closer to a brother and Jesus, baby, that's me. No matter what happens, I'm with you thick and thin. These others might leave. I'm not like them. I get it. You and me. All the way to death, prison, whatever. Sign me up. And Jesus has always known those were empty promises. Like John said earlier in the setup for worship and the setup for confession, God demonstrates his love to us. He doesn't just declare it in empty words. And what Peter has done repeatedly with Jesus offer him empty words, well-intentioned, zealous, but empty. And what Peter needed was for Jesus in his sovereign goodness to humble him out of arrogance. I don't mean this in a cruel sense. He needed Jesus to humiliate him. Those words are tied to be humiliated to be brought into humbleness, to be brought into humility. We pray for humility all the time. We rarely pray for humiliation. But that's the way God works it in us. He takes all of the arrogant things about us and he brings them low. That's what humiliation is. He made these promises to Jesus in Matthew 26. In Mark 14, even if all of these desert you, I will never leave you. Inside John's gospel in chapter 13, Jesus says, where I'm going, you cannot follow. And Peter pipes up, Lord, why can't I follow you? I will lay down my life for you. We get a glimpse of it in the garden when he pulls out a sword ready to fight. He's ready to die by Jesus' side if they can go down swinging He's not ready to be tried and persecuted and murdered like Jesus is. And so he denies him, scared of a servant girl, while Jesus is tried and beaten. 
And this is Jesus' sovereign goodness to Peter. The denial was tragic, but let me step back from it for a second and be clear. The denial wasn't the heart of the issue. In his sovereign goodness, Jesus brought Peter to the place to have where he could have his empty words tested and find out that they're actually empty. What Peter needed was to find out his promises are meaningless and Jesus' grace means everything. What Jesus was confronting was Peter's arrogance, Peter's self-assured confidence that he was not like these other weak disciples. He had real faith and real love real strength to offer. We're familiar with the language of Romans, probably, most of us at least, that it's the kindness of God that leads us to repentance. And we often mistake that to mean God bribes us into repentance, that if we could just see all the good stuff He has for us, as some pastors and authors call it, our best life now, If we could see all of the riches and swag, then surely we'd repent. And that's a gross misunderstanding of God's kindness leading us to repentance. It is sovereign goodness, but it's not always nice. It's not a bribe. It's more like when you teach your kid to ride a bike and they insist that they don't need you holding the seat. You take them out on the street, you've taken the training wheels off, you have run beside them faithfully for block after block after block. While they fumble along and teeter and steer erratically and try to pedal fast enough to keep up. And you jog beside them holding the seat. And at some point, the child you love and the child that you want desperately to teach to ride a bike insists that you are holding him or her back. If you would just let go, I could sail down the street. I am the new drug-free Lance Armstrong. Just let go of the seat. And you insist that they need you there. Eventually, argument isn't enough. You have to give in to their request and let go of the seat so they can feel how wobbly and insecure they really are. I don't mean that you let them fall over and get road rash, swerve them into traffic. I mean that momentarily you let go of the seat and they feel how much you are holding them up and they feel how shaky they actually are and that they need to be trained a little longer, that they need you to run alongside them and hold them up until they're ready to ride without you jogging beside them. Jesus is not swerving Peter into traffic. Jesus is not being cruel to Peter. But in his kindness, Jesus lets Peter feel his own weakness and the emptiness of his own words. Because Peter needed to be humbled. And this is God's grace for him. To be sure, God's grace includes forgiveness for the denial. 
It includes the gentle restoration, but it also includes the strength of letting Peter feel his own weakness, his own need for Christ and his grace and transformation. These are the kinds of things we mean when we talk about C.S. Lewis's often quoted piece from The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. And we talk about God not being safe, but being good. This is what Rich Mullins meant in the lyric, the reckless, raging fury they call the love of God. Or in Malachi a year ago, when we saw God call himself a refiner's fire. There is a terrible goodness in God's grace. But it is a good goodness. And so Jesus has taken his most zealous, but also his most arrogant disciple and sovereignly led him through failure, not to break him down and build him back up in the Marine boot camp since, but to actually show him what he needs, to teach him the strength of his grace, not only to forgive, but to transform. What Peter needed more than strength was humility. What Peter needed more than zeal and self-proclamation was gentleness and the knowledge that while he is weak, Christ's strength is perfected in him at that very weakness. This is what Jesus takes Peter through, and this is with this is what. Jesus decides to confront Peter with here. He confronts him in order to both forgive and restore him, but also to commission him for ministry and call him to discipleship. And he's simultaneously giving him all of these things. We say this often when we talk about the cross and resurrection. We tie them together in tandem all the time, but they do very different things for us, but they do them simultaneously. In His grace, God is killing our sin, both its guilt and its power. In the resurrection, He's giving us new life, but that new life is life that He works in us, purified through His refining fire from the things He had to put to death in the cross in the first place. It's not new just in the sense that it's shiny. It's not new just in the sense that it's novel, it's new in that it's made new. We are made new in the cross and resurrection. He puts to death the things in us that need to be killed. For Peter and for many of us, it's our arrogance. It's our self-reliance. Empty promises that our love is better and deeper and stronger. Our faith, because it's ours, will see us through. Jesus kills those things and gives us in new life his humility, that our faith and our love are strong, not because they're ours, but because they are his faithfulness. We love him not because we first loved him, but because he first loved us. Any faithfulness, any love that we have grows out of his faithful love for us. 
And so Jesus takes Peter through all of this, through denial and in, in the rehearsal of three questions, three interrogations. Not, do you know him from a servant girl, but do you love me from the Savior himself? Not to be cruel to Peter, but in his sovereign goodness to give him what he needs. Grace that is not only forgiving, but restorative in the sense that it changes him and brings him back to Jesus with real usefulness, real humility, real love, real faith, placed not in his own ability, but in Jesus's. If you actually go back and look at the interchange in John's Gospel, where Jesus confronts Peter and tells him, you can't follow me where I'm going, he actually says it this way. Where I'm going, you cannot follow me now. But afterwards, you will follow. An enigmatic statement that Peter protests in John 13, but makes all the sense in the world when we get to John 21 Because on the other side of this humiliation and restoration, Jesus calls him to discipleship and ministry, telling him to feed his sheep, to tend his lambs, and to follow him. And he promises him that he will die a death that glorifies God. And he says it enigmatically. But he talks about his martyrdom, being led where he doesn't want to go with his hands outstretched. We don't have the rest of the passage in front of us. We'll close John's gospel next week, but in next week's passage, it becomes clear. While this was confusing to us, and the clarifying note is parenthetical, Peter understood that Jesus was talking about his death. Peter immediately follows up with a question about the disciple John. Well, what about him? Does he have to die too? Peter gets what he's saying. And this makes sense for us of what, John, what Jesus has already preached to Peter in John 13, that where I'm going, you cannot follow me now. He might as well have said, you cannot follow me yet. I have more ministry to do in you before I can call you to follow me in my ministry, a ministry that, yes, includes tending and feeding sheep, but also includes a death even like my own. And so here in this story, what we have is not only Peter forgiven for his denial, but humbled away from his arrogance and self-reliance and called to Christ's purpose of ministry. Here we have the good shepherd himself calling Peter to feed and tend Jesus' sheep. The good shepherd calls Peter to be a conduit through which he will tip tend and shepherd his own sheep. Jesus will shepherd his sheep through Peter as a lesser shepherd. And so he's called him to discipleship, not in the generic ways that we think of it often, better obedience, moral rectitude, but discipleship that follows the master where he's gone in ministry and sacrifice.
He has forgiven and restored Peter, but not just for Peter's sake. He's done it for the sake of those that will believe and need ministry through Peter. I've quoted from Newbegin before. I'll offer you a short disclaimer before I quote from him again. Leslie Newbegin was a missionary for 40 years. And he has very helpful theologies of mission and redemption tied to ministry. But my disclaimer is this. Just like anyone else we quote, there are things we would disagree with. So don't come up to me later and tell me that Newbegin isn't someone we should read because we don't agree with everything he thinks. I know that. If you only read the people that you agree with 100%, you can't read anybody. So that said, we would disagree with Newbegin when he talks about the scope of redemption and the way that it works out in redemptive history. But he is enormously helpful in the way that he ties redemption to ministerial purpose. So talking about election and redemption, Newbegin says this, We are chosen not for ourselves, not to be the exclusive beneficiaries of God's saving work, but to be the bearers of the secret of His saving work for the sake of all He will call to Himself. We are chosen to go and bear fruit. To be elect in Christ Jesus means to be incorporated into His saving mission in the world, to be the bearer of God's saving purpose for his world, the sign and agent and first fruit of his blessed kingdom. That is John's point in this story. That is what Jesus has done with Peter, and John faithfully retells us here. John has given us a beautiful picture of a gentle, and good, but not always safe Savior, who takes an arrogant and zealous disciple and humbles him, not to leave him crushed, and forgives him, but not just to leave him passive, but he humbles and forgives and changes and calls Peter because it pleases him to call people to himself to become the agents of his ongoing ministry in the world. New St. Peter's, this is the story of St. Peter when he was made new. For his good, yes, but also for the sake of those that Jesus would shepherd through him. New St. Peter's, this is our story. We are challenged and confronted and humbled and forgiven and restored, but not only for our own sake. We are loved and forgiven and being changed because Jesus has a holy and sovereign purpose for his church. Both in his tenderness and his strength, not just for our own sake and private comfort, but called to a purpose of gospel ministry among ourselves, as we minister comfort to each other, as we confront sin that exists in our body, and also to those outside of us who have not heard and have not believed. When Jesus calls us in forgiveness and restoration, He confronts in us the, thing that, the things that need to be changed, but not just so that we can be a better us.
not just for our own self-improvement. He calls us to himself to forgive and change and restore, but he also commissions and says, follow me, follow me in my life of change and discipleship and disciple-making and ministry. Come with me as the good shepherd. Tend my sheep. When Jesus talks about himself as the good shepherd in John 10, he includes all kinds of things in the shepherding task. The way that he will feed and tend and care for, the way he will lay his life down, but also the way that he calls other sheep to himself. He calls his sheep and they respond because they know his voice. It's his voice at work in the church both inside our walls and outside of them. It's it's in His voice at work in the church that He calls more disciples to Himself and He calls for repentance among those who are already His sheep. It's in His voice that He ministers comfort to us. So knew St. Peter's You were once zealous, arrogant, foolish, in need of forgiveness. You have been forgiven. You are being changed. And in His tenderness and strength, Jesus has called you to ministry in the church and in the world. Jesus says to all of us, follow me. Amen. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your kindness to us. What often seems to us to be reckless grace, it it often does not feel safe. You continually teach us that you are good, that you will confront things in us that need to be put to death. In your cross, you have put to death both the guilt and the power of our sin. In our sanctification, you are continually putting to death its motions in us. Teaching us to hate our sin more and to love you more and more. Not for our private comfort, not only for our own sake. For our own good, and for that we are thankful but also for the good of those around us who need to be comforted and challenged with your gospel. And that gives us reason to celebrate, to follow you with joy and humility. Not confident in our own strength, we come to you and ask that you would lead us and minister to us and minister through us. Would you call more disciples to yourself? Would you grant faith to those who have not yet believed in your cross and resurrection? Would you deepen our trust in the cross and in the new life you give us in the resurrection and in the resurrection that waits for us, our final hope? Do these things for us, we ask, not only for our own sake, but for your glory in the church and the world and for the sake of those you will draw to yourself in healing and salvation. Let us see your redemption at work.
Let us give thanks and celebrate with you. We ask that you would do these things. We ask it in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen.